Welcome to the Triage Method Podcast with me, Gary McGowan, and as always, my co-host, Mr. Patrick Farrell. Paddy, how are you? As per usual, Gary, I am absolutely fantastic. I hope everyone listening to the podcast is in the same position, that they are absolutely fantastic, splendid, exultant, exuberant, whatever word, you know, best fits them. I want it to be a positive word. That's fantastic. It's very kind of you. I know. I'm a good guy. How are you, Gary? I'm very good. I um, have had a good week. I'm drinking coffee in my new mug, courtesy of a friend. Your prescription coffee. I just need to have my coffee before I can talk. Um, so, so yeah, this week we're going to be talking about uh, the brain and, and specifically we're going to be talking about the role of exercise in neurological disease. Now, naturally, like that is such a vague term, you know, neurology is a whole field. There are thousands of different pathologies you could discuss, at least hundreds of which might be, you know, somewhat common, but there are a few kind of core areas that are useful to talk about with reference to exercise because exercise is not just a peripheral event. And this is something that is a key distinction and it's something we touch on in many areas of health. And that's to not focus solely on one organ system or series of organ systems, but to ask yourself, what does this intervention do to the organism as a whole? And that goes for exercise. When we think of exercise, we might think of the muscular events or the metabolic events, or the cardiorespiratory events, or the vascular events. They're probably the main ones people think about most of the time. But we know that the brain and the nervous system are also heavily influenced by exercise, both acutely and chronically. And therefore, we would expect exercise to have at least some effect on some of the things we consider to be important in the domain of the brain and the nervous system, such as learning, memory, cognition, and then disease states like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's disease, stroke, etc. So in this episode, we'll run over some of those things. Of course, we can only cover a very small amount of detail in a single episode, but we will likely then focus in on specific pathologies in future in areas that are particularly of importance, like MS, uh, stroke, Parkinson's, etc. Yeah, and I, <clears throat> if I can even speak, yeah, I think it's actually really important to understand just this key kind of point here, which is there are clearly direct effects on the brain and the nervous system, right? And there's also, you know, we can call them peripheral effects. It's all the stuff that people generally talk about when they're talking about, you know, training, you know, the metabolic stuff, the cardiovascular stuff, et cetera, right? And all of that, like cardiovascular, metabolic, et cetera, stuff that we generally talk about, that also clearly affects the brain as well, right? So it's not just a complete separation going like, oh, these are only the direct effects and these are all peripheral effects that yeah, we don't, we only care about those. Like you need to get blood flow to your brain. You need to have, you know, good metabolism or, you know, the ability to metabolize different substrates for good brain function, for good bodily function, et cetera, right? <clears throat> so we're going to kind of try to pull these things apart in this podcast purely so we can actually discuss them. But in reality, it's all interconnected. These things don't happen in isolation. It's all happening at once. So some of the effects you get from exercise might be more neurological in, in nature. Some of them might be more metabolic in nature. 
but they're still intertwined. They're still affecting each other back and forth, you know? Absolutely. And that metabolic component is, is very important because that's one of the areas that <sighs> exercise and nutrition plays a key role in, in terms of the prevention of long-term uh, neurodegenerative disease, because we often think of metabolic components, like let's say insulin resistance, dyslipidemia, etc. We think of them in terms of their effects on the peripheries very often. You know, people will talk about things like high blood pressure affecting the heart or the process of plaques building up in arteries or atherosclerosis. But what we often don't talk about is how that impacts the brain. And it absolutely does. And we know that chronically poor metabolic health and poor aerobic fitness of relevant to this conversation is very high or increases one's risk of developing neurodegenerative disease, such as the cognitive decline and memory impairment in Alzheimer's disease. So the metabolic is very important. Now, in terms of introducing this discussion, I think there are a few different subdomains that you can consider when it comes to um, neurology and exercise, and they would be neuromotor. So that's the relationship between the nervous system and or the brain and motor function. So there are specific areas in the brain that are responsible for motor function um, at a very high level. And then there are lower levels of the brain that will be responsible for integrating motor function, integrating sensory and motor information, and then the output of balance, coordination, etc. So this is absolutely a very complex system, but we also know that it's plastic. And when I say plastic, what I mean is that it's malleable. It's something that can change over time. It's not fixed. And this is probably one of the things that will come up throughout this conversation is this idea of the brain being plastic. This is referred to as neuroplasticity, because in the past, the brain was basically thought of as being, you know, developed um, at, at birth to some extent, but then throughout childhood and adolescence, and then eventually it would come to the point where you're at 25 or so in your mid twenties, your prefrontal cortex is now fully developed. And your brain kind of doesn't really have the capacity to change, but it does have the capacity to change. And we know that exercise is one. Just to make it clear what you mean by that. Basically, what you're saying is previously we thought, you know, let's say zero to 25 or even like prenatally or whatever, you know, your brain is kind of like wet cement, right? Mm -hmm. And then once you get to 25, it's solidified, you're done. You can't do anything after that. Right. But what does that actually what does that actually mean? Are we talking about like the brain cells? Are we talking about the neurons? Like, What are we talking about here? Yeah. So there's a, a number of different places where this comes up uh, being important. So, for example, if you were to look at the um, motor cortex of and that motor cortex, meaning <coughs> the brain that that governs motor function, if you were to look at the, the size of those areas and the density of neurons in those areas and the connections between those neurons or nerve cells, you look at those in, let's say, a piano player or a surgeon, and then you look at them in, I don't know, a power lifter, let's say. You've got one group of individuals, the, the pianist, let's say, who has um, a, a strong development of, of fine motor skills. Their, fi their fingers have had to, you know, you develop fine motor skills over many years in order to become a competent pianist and then you were to compare that to the 
gross motor development of let's say a power lifter um, you're going to see differences in terms of the way those brain areas have developed over time and that's not just that's not just um the, uh, the the precedent for the performance in that it's not that they the pianist is a good pianist because their brain was built this way but there's, there might be some of that but also that over time, as they use these motor pathways over and over and over and over again, it sends a signal to the brain that we need to continue developing those areas. So it's like muscle. If I use my biceps all the time, I strengthen my biceps and I'll lay down new muscle proteins. This also happens in the brain through the process of neurogenesis. And we know that exercise is one of the variables that modulates neurogenesis to allow for um, the synthesis uh, and, and the strengthening of connections in those areas. Another thing that comes up is um, after stroke, let's say, what you can have is damage to certain areas of the brain. And initially after a stroke, someone might have um, certain deficits. Let's say they have a very weak right arm because the area in the brain governing their right arm was damaged. But what can happen over time due to the brain's neuroplasticity is those neurons that no longer have connections uh, to that area of the brain can start to kind of they almost like move around and branch branch out beyond the damaged area and they can form that connection to again strengthen that motor function so the idea here is that to some extent and it is a limited extent to be fair the brain does have the capacity to change and to grow over time um it's it's also something that's seen in the in the hippocampus which is a, an area governing um, memory in particular which is really important you see this neurogenesis that's taking place, which is the development of those new neurons. So there's kind of a couple of components to plasticity, neurogenesis in terms of the growth of the brain. Um, that's that's kind of a question that's, I think, still very much unanswered in terms of what the capacity um, of that to take place is in terms of like actually growing the brain, but specifically in terms of plasticity and its ability to change and to be dynamic, we know that that's something that absolutely does play, take place and plays a key role in the development of, of skills, of course, but also rehabilitation from injury in the case of stroke and other neurological diseases. Yeah, so the way I kind of think of it, and again, you have to always remember that I'm actually an idiot. Um, <clears throat> previously, we thought that the brain was solidified, right? Again, you reach there's different ages for this. People quote all the time, like, oh, it's 18, it's 21, it's 25. When people say 25 and you try to find the research on that, it's actually, yeah, <laughs> where, where are you getting this number from? So regardless, we used to think, okay, it's solidified at a certain age when you're quote unquote now mature, right? But what do we actually mean by that? What we Well, what they kind of mean by that is, you know, you build these, uh, let's call them pathways in your brain, right? There's a common turn of phrase, that neurons that fire together, wire together, right? And basically what that means is these neurons are required or you know, are needed for this activity to occur, whatever it is, you know, fine motor, motor skills, like Ari was saying with the, the piano player or gross motor skills with the you know, power lifter. Like you are firing in a certain way. You are requiring these neurons to fire in a certain way to coordinate that movement, for example, right? Now, wouldn't it be great if they were really good at firing together, right? Oh, it would clearly, that's gonna to lead to better communication, et cetera, right? So they wire together, they get these little spindles that come off and effectively attach to each other. They don't actually attach it, they're not actually touching, but they're attached to each other. They can communicate much more readily to each other, right? 
And then you go through this process of you know, synaptic pruning. You basically find the best pathway of communication between these you know, different neurons um, and you get rid of all the other pathways, right? That seems to be, or rather, it seemed to be the case that, oh, once you've got these pathways, once you've you know, wired your brain up, it's found the best way to do these different things at these different tasks that you've demanded of it in your first 25 years of life, you're stuck with those pathways now, right? And the way I kind of envisage that is, you know, it's a, as if, we'll, we'll use a first analogy, it's as if you've now just been planted down in the city, the roads are already in place, the different pathways are already in place, you're there, right? Like it's set. You're not exactly going to completely like cut through a building now and go, oh, we actually need, it, this would be much faster to go this way, there's a building in the way. You can't do that, right? That would be a solidified brain. It's basically a city plan. You can't get rid of buildings, etc. right? But that's not really what seems to be the case. There is a degree of neuroplasticity, right? And what we mean by that is there is an ability to effectively cut through those buildings, right? So what I kind of think of it as a slightly better analogy is it's as if you're going through a jungle, right? Now, if you're going through a jungle, you're going to have to do some like weed whacking, get your machete out, cut the pathway, right? Now, the first time you cut the pathway, it's really hard, right? This is why new things are challenging. You don't have a pathway. You have to weed whack all the way through or bushwhack if you want, all the way through the jungle, right? So it's very thick overgrowth, et cetera, right? You do that once, very hard, right? You do it a second time. Yeah, it's a little bit of, you know, keeping the road a little bit nicer, et cetera, right? You do that a thousand times, that path that you've cut really really well maintained really really nice etc you know you've you've even got a path down on it you've got the stones you've got the road etc right but if you now require yourself to do a different task or perhaps even a task that you haven't done in a while you now if you if you haven't done the task in a while you're now going back to a path that you know you haven't been maintaining right so you have to get the machete back out you have to cut through that pathway again right same with a new task, you have to create a new, a new pathway entirely, right? So that analogy helps me to kind of think of this neuroplasticity. We always have the ability, in most regards anyway, to cut a new path, right? But it is hard. This is not to say that it's an easy task. It's not like your brain wants to be, you know, quote unquote, rewired, right? It's the pathway configurations that it has set up for your first 25 years of life or whatever, you know, they're pretty solid. They've got you through 25 years of life. So your brain's like, this is good. This is clearly beneficial in this environment. Why would we create a new pathway here? Right. But if you require yourself to do different skills or different, you know, tasks or whatever, you can effectively teach an old dog new tricks, right? You can cut, cut a new pathway, right? But where does exercise fit into that neuroplasticity? Yeah, so exercise has, I think, um, three different kind of mechanistic effects, you could say, or, or mechanistic categories that allow it to um, impact some of these disease states, but also generally neurological uh, development or neurological health. So you can think of neurogenesis, um, which is basically the development of, of neurons and neuro meaning the, the nervous system or the nerve and the genesis, meaning, you know, the making of something new or creation. And 
so you've got neurogenesis, you've got angiogenesis, which relates to the development of blood vessels. And then you've got neuroplasticity, which is this sort of ability to be dynamic and malleable that we've been discussing. So they're kind of the three categories um, that exercise influences. We know that exercise increases all three of these domains through some shared and some slightly different mechanisms. So for example, we get increases in BDNF, which is brain-derived neurotrophic factor. We also get increases in IGF-1 or insulin-like growth factor 1. Um, and then also some of these um, neuro neurotransmitter effects in terms of increases in serotonin, uh, norepinephrine, uh, and also the synthesis of acetylcholine. And then we've got other things like VEGF, which is vascular uh, endothelial growth factor, which relates to the development of blood vessels. And all of these things act together um, in concert. And of course, there are more actual mechanisms involved, but these different effects act in concert to allow for uh, some of these changes within the brain or positive effects within the brain that would improve things like um, psychiatric conditions, let's say. So we might look at um, depression and anxiety. That's one thing that's going to be improved. And we know that exercise increases um, or improves both depression and anxiety. Then there's the uh, neurodegenerative conditions like Alzheimer's, for example. We know that exercise reduces risks of risk of Alzheimer's, but also can improve uh, memory and cognitive function in Alzheimer's disease, which again, somewhat relates to the capacity of the brain to um, have neurogenesis, angiogenesis, and neuroplasticity, and then the kind of neuromotor side of things uh, in Parkinson's disease, for example. So Parkinson's disease is a disease primarily of, of a lack of, of dopamine in a specific area of the brain um, called substantia nigra. Um, and this lack of dopamine leads to a number of different symptoms in Parkinson's disease, such as hypokinesia, which means you get this kind of slowing or, or a slowing or reduction in movement. You get a tremor, you get a postural imbalance. There's lots of different motor effects that result from those brain changes. And we know that that um, modulation of these different areas of neurogenesis, angiogenesis, and neuroplasticity can support um, the improvement in motor function in Parkinson's disease. And I suppose the more peripheral things like your increases in muscle mass, et cetera, and muscle strength that also obviously improve function in Parkinson's disease. So these are some of the kind of very, I guess, gross um, mechanisms or roles that exercise might play. And then we can get more specific in terms of some of the, the disease states that are of importance. Yeah, maybe just quickly go through, I know you just did it briefly, but uh, an overview of neurological diseases, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So I think like, of course you can get, you can get into the weeds here of, of many different neurological diseases, but what we're trying to think about are what's common, what do people like, I, I think that if we go through these, you're going to know at least, I would say three to five people in your family, um, friends and acquaintances that are affected by, you know, one of these diseases. So we've got dementia, and there are different types of dementia. Um, Alzheimer's disease is the most common type of dementia. Even within Alzheimer's, there are further subcategories, but there's also vascular dementia. And vascular dementia is a type of dementia that kind of emerges from a lot of the same risk factors as those of as that of cardiovascular disease. Um, and as a result, exercise and nutrition can play a, a role here in terms of the prevention of vascular dementia. So if you've got all those classic risk factors, 
you smoke, you don't exercise, you've got lots of arterial plaques as a result of, you know, um, high, high LDL cholesterol, uh, you've been eating a crappy diet all your life, etc. you're going to be at risk of um, vascular dementia and diabetes as well, really important one there. Um, but they also cross over and influence Alzheimer's disease. So you've got dementia, you've got uh, brain damage. So brain damage can be the result of um, trauma, for example. So you've got traumatic brain injuries, but you can also have other types of brain injuries, such as if someone has a a cardiac arrest or a heart attack, let's say that lack of oxygen to the brain for a certain period of time can lead to brain damage. Same thing can occur after a stroke or, or other types of events. Um, we've also got strokes then, as I mentioned. So a stroke is effectively where you've got a lack of oxygen or blood supply to the brain, which can be the result of someone bleeding out or having a clot. Um, so hemorrhagic or ischemic strokes. And these strokes then lead to damage to certain areas of the brain wherever that blood supply was distributing to. So as a result, then um, that might impact, you know, muscles, for example, or it might impact things like vision, speech, cognitive function, etc. We've got spinal cord damage, uh, which can be, you know, partial or complete. And unfortunately, the spinal cord is um, not very good, to say the least, at growing back. Um, it's not uh, particularly plastic let's say like it does have it does have plasticity but in terms of its ability to to rejoin and to grow back it's quite poor and that's why when people get spinal cord injuries you typically see um lasting effects but you you do still see some improvements which is um partially the result of neuroplasticity so you'll see some people who have had spinal cord injuries and they have no movement and many years later they're gradually getting back some movement and this is partially the result of that plasticity in action. You've got epilepsy, which are basically um, seizure syndromes, which have many, many, many different etiologies. But generally what we see is that like you can kind of think of seizures as being um, really, really intense, overactive um, brain electrical signals. Okay, that can be one area, one area of the brain. It can become generalized throughout the brain. But we know that in people who have epilepsy, that exercising regularly does actually reduce uh, frequency of seizures. And of course, that depends on the nature of the syndrome. Um, but exercise does have a role there as well. And then you've got your movement disorders, disorders such as Parkinson's, um, various different uh, types of tremor, which are beyond just Parkinson's. You've got motor neuron disease or ALS, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or Lou Gehrig's disease, as many people will know it. And then you've got multiple sclerosis as well. And those are all kind of movement disorders, but they're also neurodegenerative in nature as well. And exercise does play a role in each of those respective conditions too. And then you've got your neuropsychiatric components. So they might be your depression or anxiety, which is probably what people think of first. But you've also got ADHD, um, autism, uh, Tourette's, and various other syndromes. Uh, and again, all of which seem to benefit from exercise. So they're, they're kind of probably the most common things that you'll come across. Of course, there are plenty more, but not only are they relatively common, but every single one of those that I mentioned benefits from exercise, which is good. 100%. <clears throat> but how does it, how, how, do, how does exercise benefit these? Or like maybe pick a couple, a handful yeah. of, you know, common ones, well, maybe not so common, but, you know, big hitters here and then talk us through how exercise plays a role. Yeah. So I think in particular, like 
it, although it's actually interesting in terms of discussing prevention, but the prevention or the preventative aspect of these different conditions is somewhat of like, a, I guess you could discuss it as like a shotgun effect in that the role of lifelong exercise. Yes, it has those effects on the brain that we're talking about, but like that, I, like I mentioned, when it comes to discussing exercise as a peripheral event, we're, we're being ju- just as reductionistic if we focus solely on what exercise does to the brain in terms of preventing these diseases, because it's not just through those effects. It's also through the improvement in metabolic health throughout your life, your lifetime, for example. So better blood glucose regulation, um, better vascular function, lower blood pressure, all these types of things are what lead one to not being at, at as much of an elevated risk for a lot of these neurological diseases. You know, stroke is obviously one that's very notable. One of the largest risk factors for stroke is hypertension or high blood pressure. And we know that exercise is an incredibly potent intervention for reducing blood pressure. So it's it's somewhat to do with a lot of the traditional risk factors that we often talk about exercise improving, and then some of those specific effects as well. So when it comes to stroke, um, as I said, it's kind of very much those traditional risk factors in terms of the role that uh, exercise would play. Um, but in terms of the follow-on from stroke, that's where exercise plays a, a far more nuanced role. Because when you're introducing exercise for someone who has had a stroke, you're often, you often have to be actually very specific in terms of exercise prescription because each person with a stroke can have different deficits. And this is something that physiotherapists will typically work on to find a stroke patient where they're at and to gradually um, scale up exercise to the point where hopefully eventually someone will be back, will be back doing more conventional movement, let's say. So an exercise program for someone who's had a stroke might encompass um, balance tests and subsequent balance exercise exercises gait retraining where you're retraining someone to walk to stand up to transfer in and out of bed etc and then your more conventional you know aerobic and muscle strengthening type of exercise along with specific skills related to fine motor hand function etc so uh, stroke is a really interesting area in terms of exercise prescription and it's probably one of the best cases of neuroplasticity in practice because when you see someone and i've seen this myself who has had a stroke and has severe deficits, you know, they could have full hemiparesis, meaning that their whole one side of their body, just, they basically have no control over it. They have no strength at all. And then just a few weeks later with repeated exercise, repeated exposure, they begin, the brain begins to find new ways of making these muscles work again. And it's a fascinating thing to see. So exercise there, just incredibly important but also very individual in terms of finding the person where they're at. Now, in terms of Alzheimer's disease, um, which is extremely common and probably only becoming more common as a result of um, people living longer, number one, because like that's a very strong risk factor, but also all the cardiometabolic risk factors that you know have emerged over the last 50 plus years. So Alzheimer's disease is something that's that's actually you know you can think of alzheimer's disease or people often think of alzheimer's disease i should say as something that just happens you know um it's just one of those things that oh well you know it's it, it just it can get anyone and and that is true to some extent um 
And people don't just get Alzheimer's because they weren't fit or because they didn't eat well. There are fairly strong risk factors in terms of like family history and genetics here. But we know that um, it's exercising in terms of a lifelong capacity um, seems to have like one of the most potent effects on reducing risk of Alzheimer's disease. But not only that, something that's really interesting is that if someone does have Alzheimer's disease or any type of dementia, really, you can actually regain cognitive function or memory as a result of regular exercise, which is really interesting and is somewhat a testament to um, those factors we mentioned previously, the neurogenesis, angiogenesis, and neuroplasticity. So I think it's, it's, although Alzheimer's is a progressive condition and many types of dementia are progressive, there are also points of intervention. There are some medications that, that people take to you know, preserve some cognitive function, but exercise plays a key role here. So it's not just a, a fixed downward path. It is something that can be, can be improved. Um, in terms of like Parkinson's disease, Parkinson's disease is again, one of those areas where it, it exercises like one of your core interventions because Parkinson's is really like a movement disorder. It does have um, cognitive or neuropsychiatric, um, you know, symptoms or effects. But the, the main thing people think of when they think of or Parkinson's disease is probably like the tremor, the stooped posture, shuffling gait. Um, they're the, the classical symptoms. People become quite rigid and they decline in their function often then can spiral as a result of them not being able to do the normal daily or activities of daily living maybe not being able to exercise or go out walking in the way that they used to and then being more sedentary. And then that spiral just continues. So exercise as an intervention here can reduce risk of falls, which is something that's really important in Parkinson's disease, um, but also begin to, you know, rebuild muscle strength or muscle size and preserve uh, motor function for longer. So it is really important in Parkinson's disease. And, you know, there are, there are trials at both, aerobic and resistance training, uh, which are of benefit here in Parkinson's disease as well. Um, Parkinson's disease is a, it's, it's a, it's actually quite a specific condition in that it's pretty much related to one neurotransmitter. Now it's not just that there's a lot more to it, but it is a state of a lack of dopamine, um, in a particular area of the brain. And then that relates to many other, other areas of the brain and exercise seems to have some effects that relate specifically to um, that system and some of those connections. So it is a, a very potent intervention. Now, one of the others that we've actually, we've had some clients that have had this condition and, and it's very common in Ireland, which is multiple sclerosis. And this is one of the areas, uh, multiple sclerosis or, or MS, people might know it better as MS really, but MS is quite common. And one of the unique things about MS is that we've talked about Parkinson's, we talked about dementia, we've talked about stroke, and these things typically hit late in life. That's not necessarily the case of, with MS. You know, um, a lot of people will be uh, diagnosed with MS in their 20s, 30s, you know, young, young women very often are the, the, the demographic um, that MS can affect. So this is an area that's obviously of great relevance because if you have MS, let's say, um, it's very different to an 80-year-old who has Parkinson's disease and maybe is maybe they're coming to that stage of their life where they're, they don't really have much of a, 
a future vision, let's say. They're not looking at the rest of their life that remains in terms of like what they're going to do with their life. They're more so trying to preserve daily function. Whereas if someone's 25 years old and they've just received a diagnosis of MS, well, they're thinking, oh my God, I had all these plans. I wanted to go and do this traveling. I wanted to work this job. Will I be able to do that? Will I be able to play with my kids, et cetera? So it's, it's one of the areas where like, right, I, I want to try and do everything I can. And MS is um, a condition which can lead to, to, to weakness and to loss of muscle mass. There are some muscle specific effects of MS. And there's also this fatigue that impacts people with, with MS, which can be quite debilitating at times. And MS has a couple of different types. Um, one of the most common being relapsing remitting, where people will go through um, periods of relapses where they have much worse symptoms and then periods where they have none. So exercise plays a really key role here in terms of improving aerobic fitness. Uh, that's one, dim- one dimension, but resistance training as well plays a really key role in terms of increasing muscle mass, which does take place in MS. And I think that's an important point to make. You can still gain muscle despite this being a chronic progressive neurological condition. Um, and that then can improve fatigue in people with MS. But one of the things I often say to people when I discuss uh, exercise in MS is to use kind of like a traffic light system. Because in MS, as I said, there's these periods where symptoms are much worse. And there's these periods where um, symptoms are much better. So I would have different workouts that are like uh, in the red, in the uh, yellow, and in the green. So the green workouts are the ones that you do when you have no symptoms. You're feeling great. Fatigue is more or less absent. They're like your hardest workouts. And, and this applies to everyone, really. But then you in the yellow, you've got your workouts that are kind of in the middle. Maybe you're not having the best day. Um, and then in the red, they're your workouts um, or your very light activity for when maybe fatigue is a bit higher and you're having more symptoms associated with your MS. And using that type of system can allow someone with a condition like MS, which can be variable, to continue exercising um, throughout their life. So it is something that's important. It's going to absolutely improve your function and your quality of life um, going into you know the, the next few years or your later years with MS. And uh, yeah, absolutely something that's worth doing. So I think that's... Just on that traffic light system, especially like there's two components to this is like, like you said, we've had a variety of a few clients I can think of at least off the top of my head that have had MS or rather I should say that have MS. (laughs) Um, And using some sort of system like that is really, really important. Um, It it does apply to most trainees. You know, we want to have some sort of auto regulation and we can do a few different things with that in terms of the auto-regulation. First of all, we can just have a, you know, RPE. That's the, you know, generally what people kind of think of when they think of auto-regulation. You're going, okay, look, if today's the day, you're just not able to lift those weights, they feel really heavy, go lighter, but, you know, still hit an RPE 7 or 8, you know? So it's a relative rating of perceived exertion. You're like, okay, today's not my day. I'm going to go a little bit lighter. Or today is my day. I'm going to go a little bit heavier. Now, with MS and other conditions, we might also really start bringing in more of a volume component to that auto-regulation going, look, if today's just not your day, just do one set, maybe drop the weight as well. But we do want to still get you doing some sort of movement, right? Um, And again, other days you might be like, I am absolutely on fire. I'm ready for this. You might do a little bit more volume on those days. 
take advantage of it, right? So we want to have some flexibility built in there. But another thing that I find is really important, especially in the case of MS, where there might be some, for example, balanced uh, issues, right? We might have a situation where certain exercises you're perfectly fine with when you know you're in this period of like lower symptoms and you're not having issues so then we can do our more balance requiring exercises maybe you can do your lunges you can do your you know free uh, squats that kind of stuff right but then if you are going through a period where you're noticing your balance is you know a little bit less than you would want it maybe then we peel back on doing stuff like lunges or you know squats and we're bringing in stuff which has a little bit more stability right so that you're not going okay well now i'm limited by the fact that my balance my coordination maybe is a little bit off so that isn't normally something that people will change with uh, some sort of auto regulation system but i think it's really important to keep in mind when we're talking about more neurological conditions which might have you know, a balance deficit occurring that might have, you know, some sort of strength imbalances occurring. Like if you have something in say, like a stroke, for example, and you recovered from it, but you still have some sort of strength deficit between like your left arm and your, your right arm, we might not choose exercises that have a huge, uh, you know, difference uh, in terms of, oh, we're going to get you to do, I don't know, like a dumbbell chest press. And you're like, right, well, my left, my left arm is doing five kilos and my right arm is able to do 50 kilos you know it's like we might do different things to account for that and that is something that i again i don't think is fully accounted for in these more kind of general training guidelines around this kind of auto regulation but it is something that's really important when we consider more neurological conditions absolutely and i think that you know if you're if you're someone with one of these conditions i think one thing you can do is to try to find um either a personal trainer or um a, a physiotherapist who has experience at working with people um with your condition so you know there's there's people who specialize physios in particular who specialize in things like stroke or parkinson's and ms and there's often you know support groups for these types of conditions as well as so you can find others who have been in that position but um all neurological diseases vary in terms of their intensity as well. So, you know, there's, there's even some like fitness influencer, personal trainers online who have um, MS and I've spoken to them and, and they just, they train, you know, you go on their page and they, there's, you wouldn't think any, any different to of, of them than any other fitness person that you would follow. Um, but they will have periods where it's a lot more difficult maybe for them to continue their training practice. So, um, it, it's very much individual dependent. Now, one thing to, to note here is that we've been focused very much on pathology here in terms of like the neurological diseases and where exercise might fit in. But what covers a lot more of us is probably the role of exercise in normal general health um, and brain health. You know, where, where does exercise fit in there? because it does fit in. And some of the things that all of us experience to some extent would be um, even, even some of the, let's say, psychiatric conditions like depression and anxiety. Everyone experiences some degree of depression or low mood and some degree of anxiety. It doesn't mean it would reach a, a clinically relevant state, but it's still something that we all experience from time to time. And even in healthy people without you know, uh, 
clinically diagnosed depression or generalized anxiety disorder or any of the other types of anxiety disorders, um, we know that exercise can improve mood and it can also uh, lead to reductions in, in anxiety. And this is something I actually remind clients at a lot of the time, really, because sometimes people will have busy periods where they're just feeling really anxious. They have a lot going on at work or maybe things are just stressing them out. They might have things going on at home. And the tendency is to double down on where whatever it is um, that you're that, that maybe is stressing you out. So if you're if work is stressing you out, you spend all your time working and thinking about work. And that might be necessary sometimes if you genuinely have the most intense project and you need to spend every hour of the day on it. But I would say 99% of the time, taking 30 minutes even to do some exercise, even if it's just getting out for a brisk walk outside, is going to improve not only your mood in terms of that those uh, anxious symptoms that you're experiencing, but also your subsequent productivity and your ability to complete the task well. It doesn't mean that you should go and do a two hour, like super intense workout that's going to leave you super fatigued. And I think that's one of the key points here is that sometimes when people talk about the, the uh, mental benefits of exercise, you know, a, a bodybuilder or someone who trains really hard will turn around and say, I feel crap after my workouts. I don't feel better after them. And that's true for me as well. You know, if I do a super hard interval workout, I'm not really doing that for the the like productivity benefits after I feel I feel shattered. I want to go to bed for a while. Um, but uh, doing some form of exercise generally leads to those improvements in mood, like I mentioned, reductions in anxiety, but then other things such as improvements in learning and memory. And this has been studied. And to some extent, it's hard to study because like there's no real placebo for exercise, but Exercise seems to, even in the short term, allow your um, allow your brain to integrate memory and to integrate new skills, even if they're not related to physical traits. So if you're if you're you know doing exams, the tendency might be, I'm not going to do any exercise. I'm just going to focus on the books. But generally, what we see is that people who are fitter, who are exercise who who exercise more, um, tend to actually have you know, better learning and memory. They tend to do better um, on exams. Even if you're exercising regularly, you tend to actually do a bit better, provided, of course, that you're not just taking all of your time and energy and diverting it into hard training. Because there's a difference between training like an athlete and then, you know, just exercising for your mental well-being or your learning memory or cognitive function. I was listening to a, an interview with uh, Khabib Nurmagomedov, who is a uh, an MMA fighter for those who aren't into MMA or retired MMA fighter now and a coach, but best ever, we should say, huh? The best, best ever. Yes. The best ever, the goat from Dagestan. And he was talking about his training regime when he was, you know, in his peak or chasing his peak, let's say. And he, he's kind of talking about how, Oh, all these athletes, they think they're focused on recovery and they take these supplements and massage, etc. And he's saying, the thing, the thing that's recovery for me is sleep. And he talks about how he would train three to four times per day. And between each respective session, he's sleeping for a couple of hours. So basically all he is doing is sleeping and training and obviously eating, but that's pretty much it. That's how he spent all his time as a professional athlete sleeping throughout the day. Now, 
that's not you. <laughs> that's not you. So you're, you're not going exercising three, four times a day for like mental benefits. You know, he's doing that because he's shattered and otherwise would find it difficult to function in his next training session. So when you're following athletes, you have to be able to differentiate what they're doing and why they're doing it from what you're doing and why you're doing it. So if you are a, you know, let's say a, a busy business executive or you're a nurse or you're whatever you happen to do, you're a bit, you're a busy person. You're constantly have to be using your brain. You constantly have to be um, focused on what you're doing and you feel to regulate your mood and your emotions, etc. It might be that a 30 minute or 60 minute moderate intensity exercise session is what you need to be able to get that reboot and to feel focused. And everyone will have that sweet spot. There are some sessions that will be far beyond your intensity threshold for feeling better after it. And therefore you should be scaling it back a bit. That's something I try to do. If I'm going into the hospital for the day, let's say I I'm generally not going to do like a, a ruthlessly difficult exercise session in the morning because I'm just, I'm kind of beat up after it. Really. I'd rather do that later in the day. Now, sometimes I have to, but if I do a light exercise session, like 45 minutes of moderate intensity cardio, that actually kind of wakes me up. It gets me going for the day. I feel a bit mentally sharper after. So you have to identify that sweet spot for yourself. And the reason I'm specifying this is because it's not enough to just say exercise improves these things. You have to find the threshold of exercise that improves these things, because these are parts of this discussion that are a bit more subjective and a bit more identifiable. Like you can, you can identify how much mental clarity do I have? How much focus do I have? How productive am I? So they're the things you have to kind of tinker with yourself in order to have an appropriate exercise approach. hundred percent. And <clears throat> I think it's really important to understand both those things that you said, we well, said a lot of things, but both those things in terms of there's a time component to this. If you're training three hours per day, whatever, you're probably not going to have <laughs> the best memory, the best work, etc., because <clears throat> you are spending so long actually just exercising and you're probably way in above the uh, re- you know, lowest required dose to get the benefits. That's not to say that there aren't additional benefits. Like we've talked about it previously that, you know, more exercise is generally better but if we're talking about on the day, you know, memory, you know, whatever, any of these kind of different brain related phenomena, you know, if you're spending five hours per day exercising, you're probably not going to be doing a lot that you know, benefits from memory, improved cognition, et cetera. For example, <clears throat> sorry, I'm coughing here. Um, I used to work in a university gym, right? So there was lots of you know, students in the gym. And you could see students that would spend three hours, you know, doing resistance training. And you'd also see other people doing, you know, their 45 minute session. Right. And I literally know students who were spending time in the gym and missed exams as a result of spending time in the gym. Right. So we're not by any means saying that just by going to the gym, you're going to have better grades. You're going to have better cognition. You're going to get better results in life, et cetera. Right. That's not a, a given, right? But we do seem to see some benefits from exercise in terms of cognition, memory, et cetera, et cetera, right? So there's that component. That's just a time component. And then there's also this intensity is the wrong word. Maybe we'll call it the dose. 
Um, and that both applies to the type of training that you're doing and then the overall intensity of the training that you're doing. For example, if you're doing cardiovascular training, like I have ADHD, for example, right? Uh, this is a neurological condition. We can put it in this category here, right? If I do aerobic training, I find that that for me is the most beneficial thing for my cognition, right? That for me, when I'm really aerobically fit, my brain just works better, right? Um, if I do resistance training, that doesn't seem to give me the same benefits. You know, if I do a resistance training session in the morning, which I often do, it's not like my cognition throughout the day is better. It's not like my ability to stay on task is better. Oftentimes I find for the first two hours or so after a resistance training session, my ability to stay on task, it's actually not, it's actually probably worse. Right. So we have to, and now maybe I could modify my training, not train as hard, et cetera, et cetera. It's just stuff that I'm not willing to do. And you wouldn't be so jacked out of your mind. Um, <clears throat> but either way, you have to kind of play around with the dose, the type of exercise, the intensity of the exercise, etc., and find that sweet spot for you, for what you have going on. And unfortunately I can't give you some guidelines for that in terms of, Oh, well, here you go for MS, do this for dementia, do this for stroke, do this. We don't have those guidelines. It's a very individualized thing. Right. Um, but in general, <clears throat> what I would recommend doing is just start it off lighter and then going heavier, you know, if that makes sense or rather lighter and heavier, are probably the wrong words, starting off at a lower intensity, doing something like aerobic cardio. So you're never in a, like pushing into that kind of, uh, acidosis or lactic threshold above that or anything or if you're doing weights you're never really pushing into like uh, really heavy weights really close to failure you're just kind of taking it a little bit easier start there see what benefits you get from it and then you can start pushing things you know yeah i completely agree and um like personally anecdotally i i think the the things that benefit me mentally in terms of mood anxiety and then particularly those mental focus um, and clarity components are aerobic exercises you said i like that it makes me feel really good especially like a, a moderate intensity session where you finish but you're like i could have kept going but i didn't you know and obviously the other thing i suppose is if i can do that outdoors like hiking in the mountains unreal the best of all that's like the gold gold standard uh, not in the, the beach, the dirty seaside, disgusting. Mountains, woodlands, absolute woodland supremacy here at Triage. Now, so there's that, but also uh, jujitsu, which is obviously a very kind of specific type of exercise, but the the combination of the physical component of jujitsu, which is on average moderate intensity in terms of like what, when you're, when you're drilling and yeah, you might have some periods where it's more intense, but an average jujitsu session is moderate intensity. Uh, but also the kind of cognitive component and the, the fact that you're getting out of your own head and you have to really focus on what you're doing. I find that to be like from a, a depression and anxiety perspective, like mood and anxiety in particular, that's the absolute best for me. Um, and that won't be for everyone, but for me anyway, that's just like the best. It's, it's almost like a moving meditation in some ways because my mind is just like, it's just focused on one thing. It's not getting away from, or it's not deviating to all the other problems in my life, let's say. So I'm sure there are other things, like some people report very similar 
um, experiences with um, dancing, for example, because you're focused on the next move, you're kind of have to be very perceptive what's coming next and, and many other sports too, I'm sure. Um, but that, that jujitsu in particular, I just find that because you're always thinking about the next thing, you're always focused on your opponent that's trying to kill you. Um, it's just, uh, it, it's, it's very, it, it's almost like a dance in some ways, both physically and psychologically. And I'm sure you could probably say the same about boxing and other martial arts as well, but I don't have that experience. So jujitsu for me, walking in the mountains and aerobic exercise are the goats 100 i would agree with jujitsu well it's really anything that gets you out of your own head like yeah. if you're doing resistance training like realistically you can go on your phone in between your sets you can be thinking about whatever but you can't really do that in something like jujitsu or you know sports in general you know like if you're doing even putting soccer or gaelic or whatever like you can't really be in your own head thinking about pretty much anything else except being in the moment. And this is one of those things where I never really understand when people talk about like being in the moment and being present and all that, and they just don't bring up sports, which sports are probably the most the effective way like to do it. Um, so yeah, that's just one of those things. Unfortunately, I'm the type of person at jujitsu that just tells jokes the whole time and just fucking, you know, whispers sweet nothings in your ear as I'm choking you. So it's not exactly an out of uh, head experience for you. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I don't. I'm just uh, totally zen. Don't even speak. <laughs> but anyway, guys, that's that's actually pretty much everything that I wanted to cover in this episode. There are absolutely more uh, specific things that we can discuss with refer with reference to um, different diseases, and we'll definitely at least do another episode on exercise and mental health specifically. You know, with depression, anxiety, etc. Because there's actually there are some interesting things beyond just the, the mechanisms, you know, you can discuss the brain drive neurotrophic factor, whatever these types of things, but there's also a kind of a higher layer of let's a bit more messy, which is the psychological and, you know, the, the, the psychological experience of exercising and getting better and doing something productive and progress. And that probably has benefits above and beyond just the, the mechanisms that we can describe. So that'll be another episode, but for this purpose of this one, I don't think I have anything else to add. Me either. Well, I suppose we could just finally say that exercise in general, especially if you do have some sort of neurological condition, like exercise just in and of itself is generally empowering. It's going to reduce, yep. you know, other physical especially comorbidities that can go along with having a neurological condition especially one that you know if you have a neurological condition and you know people are telling you like oh just you know i'll help you with the the shopping i'll help you with this and you're not actually going out and doing a lot for yourself like that's it kind of feels very disempowering and also it can actually lead to worsening health overall because you're never actually challenging yourself. You're never actually going out doing anything physical anymore. And it leads to a worsening of muscle function, muscle mass, strength, et cetera, et cetera, you know? Um, so exercise is just a good thing in whatever form you can do it. Um, especially if you have a neurological condition, you know, again, it's just, it's, it's one of those things that so few people realize the benefits of, you know? And I, I don't mean just a, they cognitively realize the benefits of it. Like everyone knows, oh, exercise is good for you. But I mean, how good life could be if you were to exercise, you know? Like most people are aware there are benefits to exercise and yet they still don't do it. But if they were to do the exercise and then actually see the benefits in their own life, neurological condition or not, like 
it's a fucking game changer. You know, you can see why people in the health and fitness world become like exercise zealots. They're like, oh, you need to get on the path. You need to be exercising. You should be in the gym all the time because it is one of those things that is truly life changing. You know, like you are literally, yeah, like you are a different person on exercise and off exercise. <laughs> you know, like I, I even noticed that personally. And I'm not someone that ever, like, really ever tends towards depressive thoughts. Like, I can count on my fucking hand, you know, how many depressive thoughts I've had. Um, schizophrenic thoughts now, maybe they're a bit different. <laughs> depressive thoughts, very rarely, right? But I came back from Paris, uh, was it in January? Um, and I had to do a COVID test, came out positive for COVID, had COVID. I had no symptoms apart from a little small cough. I can go back on the podcast. We discussed it. And I had to stay in the house for 10 days. And that nearly fucking broke me. <laughs> I was like, oh man, like this is so depressing. I'm like so low mood because I wasn't able to do the types of exercise that I enjoy doing, right? Now it wasn't full-blown depression or anything. It was just low mood. I was just like, oh, like fuck this. Like I actually enjoy exercising. I can't go out and exercise. And yeah, I still did bits in the house, but it just wasn't the same right um so me on exercise versus me not on exercise again not someone that i want to be not on exercise yep exercise it is as close to a miracle drug as we're ever going to get and i am absolutely an exercise zealot and i'll never get off this high horse so get to the gym today or get out in the mountains for a walk that'll be even better and uh yeah your your brain and your body will benefit from doing so so other than that, guys, of course, if you need help with your exercise programming or nutrition or both, we do have uh, coaching spaces available that includes full training and nutrition coaching or nutrition coaching in isolation. So if you'd like to work with the triage team, you can find more information in the description box below. We also obviously put out this podcast every week. We appreciate when people share it and when they leave a rating and review. So if you could do that, that'd be fantastic. Also, make sure you subscribe on your podcast app because that gives us an indication as to you know whether or not we're putting out the right content you know if we're growing we're saying right this is good people like this stuff um if we're not getting any feedback we don't know what to do next so let us know other than that we have the newsletter which goes out every week once again and that's exclusive content that doesn't go on our social media so make sure that you're subscribed there too and if you don't follow us on social media of course you should be doing that at triage method on instagram and other platforms but mainly on instagram and then of course we've got uh, our own individual social media, uh, me at Skinny Gaz, Patty at the Real Patty Farrell, and the rest of the team, which you will find on the Triage Method page. So follow all those. You'll be mostly on the path. But then, if you really want to get on the path, particularly when it comes to your ability to be a nutritionist or nutrition coach, we recommend that you do our nutrition certification again, which you can find in the description box below. Fantastic. I have nothing else to say. So I hope everyone enjoyed this, and we'll see you in the next one.